Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 214. I'm Douglas Wilson. Thanks for joining us. Good to have you here. I really appreciate you people continuing to come around. So I want to talk a little bit about um, one aspect of the madness that is afflicting us here in clown world of 2021. Uh, and it looks like, uh, looks like I might start off by talking about something else, but I'm, this is all part of the same subject, I promise. Uh, very early on in a pastor's career, he probably learns or should learn uh, something about the futility of counseling drunks. Um, you, when someone calls you up at two in the morning and they're drunk, that is not the time for a counseling session. A counseling session is not going to do any good at all. Now, of course, I'm not talking about a crisis situation where some domestic incident is going down or someone's threatening suicide or, uh, but I'm talking about someone who's just having a sad life and the more they drank, the sadder it got. And then they decided to call you at two in the morning. Counseling someone who is drunk is an exercise in futility. You need to save your breath for walking uphill. It, that's not going to get you anywhere. Um, it's, there's no, there's no future in it. There's no good in it. You're counseling someone who's drunk. He might not even remember what you say. Um, don't, don't bother counseling drunks. That doesn't mean that you can't help someone who has a problem with drinking, but it means that you can't help them by giving them counsel in the midst of their drunkenness. That's not, that's not going to work. That's not going to help anybody. Now, I believe that our current generation is drunk. And, uh, You've probably you've seen many instances of this madness, but we quit calling people mothers, right? We are actually at the point where you could <laughs> you you could get fired from uh, a well-respected American corporation by sending out an email to the whole staff saying, "I just want to wish all you moms out there a happy Mother's Day." That could get you fired because you re you used an offensive term, mothers. They're birthing people. Th these are birthing people. And these birthing people can identify as a man. And if they identify as a man and they're six months along and they get their name changed, uh, they, can, they can have this baby because um, nobody informed the womb it was now inside a man, and the baby uh, comes along the way the baby always does. The baby is born, and you're not. You you must say, look at this. A father. Uh, look at this. A man gave birth, uh, and we can't say mother because he's not. Well, why can't we call him a mother? Uh, oh, but that's a separate. That's a separate issue. Let's not chase squirrels. When the when the society around you is doubling down on madness like this birthing people. Uh, you can't say mom, can't say mothers. They're birthing people. For you to get out there and try to explain to everybody how silly this is, is counseling a drunk. You're, you're, this is, we are, we are past the point 
where a cogent and lucid argument is going to fix anything. It's not, it's not going to fix anything. This thing has to crash into the wall. Um, we're going to have to, um, when, when you look at some of the shenanigans that are going down, you might be thinking, Lord, we, America needs a famine. We need an alien invasion. We need something to take our minds off of these lunatic jags that we're going on. But you're not going to be able to jump in there, put up your hands and say, look, everybody, let me explain to you uh, why birthing people is not a good phrase to use. Uh, You're just counseling drunks. We should respond. We should be preparing our response. We should be getting ready for a response. But getting ready for the response is largely going to consist of getting ourselves prepared to pick up the pieces. You don't counsel the drunk, in other words, but you know that he's going to have a roaring hangover in the morning, and so you get some of the stuff you need to help him deal with that in the morning. You're, you're pre- you prepare yourself to pick up the pieces. America is going to have a massive hangover after this, a massive hangover. This stupidity, lunacy, is not a good long-range plan. And so what we need to do is don't waste our, don't waste our bath, breath arguing with people who've got the bit in their teeth, who arguing with people who say, this is the way it is. Argue, argue, we're past the point of argument. This is not the time or place. There might be some uh, limited venues where an argument might make sense, and you would probably know what they are, but Facebook is not that place. Continuing with episode 214, this is our section that we call hamartiology. Over the last few weeks, we've been discussing various aspects of idolatry, idol temples, meat sacrificed to idols, the idolatry itself, and now we come to the actual idolaters. The word for this is idolatres, and it naturally occurs a number of times in the New Testament. First, an idolater was a fit subject of church discipline. That's the first thing. An idolater was a fit subject of church discipline. If someone had professed Christ, if they'd been baptized, if they were a member of the church, and then they went back to the worship of idols, that needed to be addressed. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says this, Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. That's 1 Corinthians 5.10. Then the next verse, for, But now I have written unto you, not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, there it is again, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one, no, not to eat. So that's verse 11. Idolaters are not going to inherit the kingdom. Idolaters are not going to make it. They're right in there with uh, revilers and fornicators and covetous people and extortioners, drunkards. It's not, not good. Idolaters in the time of the new covenant were also subject to God's temporal judgments just as they had been in the Old Testament. So, for example, uh, 1 Corinthians 10.7, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So, um, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells the Corinthians not to be idolaters because God killed a bunch of idolaters back in the day. So, 
This makes sense because idolaters are numbered among those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, and this point is repeatedly made. Then 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, there it is, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. None of these people will inherit the kingdom. The same thing is said again in Ephesians 5, 5. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So a covetous man is an idolater, and he is not going to inherit the kingdom. Revelation 21.8 But the fearful and unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, there it is, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 21.8 And then speaking of the New Jerusalem and who is excluded from the New Jerusalem, Revelation 22.15 says, For without are dogs, and sorcerers, and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. 22.15, Revelation 22.15 God, So, uh, this is uh, pl- the podcast, episode 214. My book, my book this time around is one of the more influential books in my life. Uh, and it was, I, well, I think I read it in 1987, and it was The Puritan Hope. It's called The Puritan Hope by Ian Murray. I'm sure if you, if you uh, handed me a pop quiz on The Puritan Hope, what was chapter three about, that kind of thing, if I were a student and I just read it, I could probably do fine. But the influence of this book was uh, bigger. I probably would fail a quiz on it now. But it was nevertheless. I remember the book uh, vividly and the experience of reading it vividly and the and the place it occupied. Um, when I became uh, post mill, I I was an I was in a very odd position when I became post millennial because I was quite possibly the only non reformed post millennialist in North America. Uh, I don't know of anybody else that was in that position. I I was uh, reading a bunch of. Um, I was reading a bunch of like reconstructionist literature and people, uh, uh, but I was pretty bigoted against Reformed theology proper, Calvinist theology proper, and so I didn't, um, uh, I wasn't soteriologically a Calvinist. But I started reading, uh, I started reading on eschatology, not aware of how these things were all deeply uh, connected. And somewhere in the mid '80s, I read. Uh, uh, I read some post mill literature, and something snapped in my head uh, in the in the middle of one book. Uh, the author, it was David Chilton, uh, quoted, "For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet." And when I read that, something snapped in my head, and I, oh, he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Uh, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, not in the standard eschatology I was used to. The first enemy to be destroyed. Is death when Jesus comes back. But if the kingdom of God grows and expands and subdues all enemies of Christ except for death, then the last enemy is destroyed by him at his coming. Anyway, that happened sometime in the mid 80s. Before this, I had, um, before this, at some point, I had read uh, Charles Finney's lectures on revival. 
And there's something about Finney's approach uh, repulsed me. I just didn't like it at all. So I walked away from the whole subject of revival. I did. I grew up in a kind of revivalistic tradition, um, but I said, I don't like this Finney stuff. And so I, I walked away from it. After I became post-millennial, I thought, okay, that means the earth is going to be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then I looked around at what was going on and thought something like, well, not at this rate. Uh, I think, looking back, I think that was a mistake, but that's what I thought. Not at this rate. Something, something's terribly wrong. And so I, I reopened my study of revival, uh, revivals and reformations. Uh, but this time it was looking at men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield, reformed guys. Um, Finney was part of the Second Great Awakening, and I went back to the uh, the First Great Awakening. Now, one of the great historians uh, and biographers of the events in the First Great Awakening is Ian Murray, the gent who wrote this um, this book, The Puritan Hope. And I began to realize that the kind of Reformation and revival that I was um, interested in now now interested in was historically the kind of fruit that grew on one kind of tree, uh, and that was Reformed theology. And uh, so I, be- I know that I became a Calvinist in 1988, and I read The Puritan Hope in 1987. Now, the Pur- what The Puritan Hope did was illustrate for me how the postmillennialism that I had already adopted fit together with evangelistic zeal that was thoroughly reformed. Right, so that's, that was the combination. Uh, the, the, the jibe directed at Calvinists is that they're not interested in evangelism. I think that that's, uh, I think that that's a slander, historically speaking, but uh, it's an effective uh, jibe nonetheless. And it was something that affected me, I think, uh, because I became post-mill. That means the world's going to be evangelized. And then I saw uh, in Murray's description of the Puritan hope, the, es- the eschatological view that I had already come to adopt, and he showed how it motivated a missionary zeal that was post-millennial, like I was, and was reformed, like I wasn't yet. So it sort of was an appetizer. It whetted, uh, whetted my appetite. Um, for things to come, which all fell into place the following year. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out No Quarter November in the Canon app. We have new audiobooks, conferences, and more all month long, so download the Canon app and subscribe today.